Now, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll give our attention only to three short verses this morning, but for a broader context, we will begin reading in verse 7. We'll read from verse 7 through the first half of verse 16, but again, our focus this morning will be predominantly on verses 13 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so that death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written in here, he cites Psalm 116, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. This is God's holy word. Let us pray and ask that he would illuminate our hearts with the preaching of the word. Our gracious God and Father, as we read of the faith that you have given to the saints of old, we ask that you would strengthen us with that same faith this morning, that through the ministry of your word, you would open our eyes to see what you have commanded us to do, and that we might hear the promises you have called us to believe, that we might be shaped more and more into the image of our faithful Savior who died and was raised for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. How do you deal with discouragement? Do you you even get discouraged? Might seem like a silly question because it sure seems like if you are to look on any social media site, all anybody talks about is how happy they are, it seems. But I think the reality is uh, one that we all face, that it is um, that we all get discouraged. And it's okay to be discouraged question that we have before us is how do you handle it? What do you do with such discouragement, particularly as it relates to matters of the faith? Perhaps you've been mocked by friends at school because you won't get drunk with them. Peter addresses that in his first letter. It's a real form of suffering for the Christian. Perhaps your whole family are unbelievers, and so you feel isolated and discouraged. Perhaps you're trying to be faithful to the Lord's ways and commands, but it only seems to lead to greater adversity and even greater discouragement. Perhaps you've lost out on a job promotion because you won't work at the Sunday shift in an, in a, an attempt to keep the fourth commandment. Perhaps you've been excluded from the inner ring of your colleagues because of your ethical standards. See, this is the trouble with trials. When sorrow is hit, we feel cornered. We tend to feel much like Elijah, if you remember Elijah in 1 Kings. He becomes convinced that he's alone. 
that he is unique in his suffering. Nobody suffered like me. How many of us think that way in the midst of deep trial? We retreat and we turn inward, thinking that nobody can cope and help or relate. I want you to imagine Paul's own scenario that he's facing now as he's writing to this uh, church of Corinth. Here's a man who has been beat up. Here's a man who has been hunted down like a dog by Jew and Gentile alike. Here's a man who has been stoned and left for dead. Here's a man with a prison record. Here's a man who's been shipwrecked. Here's a man who's been called a phony when he's anything but. You'd think he'd throw in the towel at this point in time. Right? What's so great about the new covenant? That question he keeps coming back to here in this second letter. The question is, why does Paul not quit? Why does he say here in the midst of all this, so we do not lose heart? A phrase that he repeats on several occasions in this chapter. Our passage this morning considers the issue of faith under fire. And so if you feel beat up, if you feel beat down, if you feel beat in any other direction, And I have good news for you. As we have a Savior who has given us this portion of Scripture to comfort troubled hearts. We'll consider the good news here under three headings. First, we'll consider the confidence of faith, seen here in verse 13. Secondly, we'll consider the content of faith in verse 14. And finally, we will consider a consequence of faith in verse 15. So the confidence, content, and a consequence of faith. Well, if you remember our broader context, as we've been making our way through the fourth chapter, Paul has likened the act of preaching to the act of creation. Just as God spoke the worlds into existence, just as he spoke and light had shined in darkness, so now in the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit speaks and shines a light in the hearts of unbelievers, causing us to be partakers of a new creation. Paul will get to this when we get to chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is, in fact, a member of the new creation. This is very powerful. Preaching is powerful. But then, as he had talked about that in verses 1 to 6, in verses 7 to 12, Paul begins to contrast the power of the gospel with Paul's own powerlessness to say that this is not, uh, uh, um, this might be a paradox, but it is not a contradiction that this has been done for a particular purpose, that God manifests his power, his power in powerless vessels so that we would not confuse the source of that power. And it's within that context here that Paul speaks now of the sustaining power of the grace of God as a minister in the midst of suffering. He says, as you see here in verse 12, looking back, so death is at work in us, but life is in you. Right? We saw that last week. This is something that Paul says is, is uh, something that you see is bound up with the work of the ministry. That ministers undergo a particular form of suffering for the sake of the congregation. But so that there would be no confusion, Paul is not simply saying that the, the members of the church, non-officers of the church now get off the hook where they don't have to worry about suffering. Uh, you see uh, here in verse 13, that we all have that same spirit of faith. Even as Paul speaks of the apostolic sufferings in verses 7 to 12, now he communicates a biblical principle that is true for all believers. 
And by the same spirit of faith, it's that same attitude of faith that has been wrought by the same spirit who produces faith that seems to be what he is bringing into view here, right? There is no saving faith apart from the spirit's saving work. That is something that we see over and over again that Paul keeps attesting, that it is the spirit who works faith in the heart of believers by turning our affections and turning our direction to Christ, It is the Spirit who produces faith in all of God's people throughout all ages. We find that this faith is not unique to the Apostle Paul. He did not have some special gift of faith that is distinct from everybody else. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that this gift of faith is not something that is even unique to uh, believers under the new covenant. Rather, that the gift of faith is something that the Spirit has worked in believers throughout all ages, under, be it under the old covenant of grace under Moses or the new and better covenant that has been inaugurated by Christ. There is a special grace given to all believers throughout all time, even under the old covenant. As he now cites Psalm 116, uh, the psalmist writing under that old dispensation. The psalmist's prayer begins in Psalm 116, O Lord, deliver me from death, and yet how does the psalm end? It ends in an exclamation that you have delivered me from death. Even in the midst of saying that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, perhaps hinting again that death is not the end for the believer. And yet, as you focus on verse 10, uh, Psalm 116, verse 10, which is the, the passage that Paul cites here in 2 Corinthians, uh, the, the psalmist says this, that even in the midst of my affliction, I trusted in you. In other words, I believed even as I spoke, saying I'm greatly afflicted. Consider what faith the psalmist has, even in the midst of great suffering, great tribulation, great torment, to say, I still believe. Think of Job. I think it's Job 16, Job 19. What does he say in the midst after he's lost everything? His health, his family, his wealth, his home, his friends. What does Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's tremendous faith. The Lord who has promised life to say that this Lord, even though he slays me, I'll still put my trust in him. Think of Abraham, who in one sense put his son to death, never actually put the knife onto the throat. As you remember in Genesis 22, but Abraham had that, that knife raised and he was planning to do it. Hebrews tells us Abraham did that because he knew that because the Lord had promised Isaac would be the child of promise, that Abraham would not come back down off that mountain alone. That's why Abraham tells uh, the two servants, even as uh, he, right before he and Isaac are about to ascend the mountain, he tells his two servants, he says, wait, me and my son are going to offer sacrifices to the Lord, and in a few days we will return to you. Not just me. Abraham knew that he was coming back one way or another with Isaac. To trust in the Lord, even in the midst of certain death, displays a tremendous spirit-wrought faith, even in the midst of discouragement. Remember Paul's critics. They say Paul cannot be a legitimate apostle. He suffers too much. He is so weak and he is so afflicted. 
Yet it is clear that these enemies of Paul don't grasp what the real gift of the Spirit is. These false teachers think that it is health and wealth in this life. Paul says it might. It's not that. But it's the knowledge that the Lord will deliver us through death and usher us in to a new creation. Note Paul's defense. He is saying, look, the psalmist himself suffered. In fact, again, I've mentioned this a few times over the past few weeks, but if you survey and tally up the different types of psalms uh, throughout uh, the book of Psalms, you'll have your coronation psalms. We'll actually look at one of those psalms this evening. Uh, You'll look at those psalms of thanksgiving. You'll look at those psalms of adoration. But more often than not, um, the psalm you find, type of psalm you find more than any other is the psalm of lament, the psalm of mourning and suffering, the psalm of crying out to God in the midst of desperation. In other words, suffering is not foreign to the believer's experience. I think it's, it's so hard for us to grasp in the 21st century West. Or if we're hungry, we can just go to McDonald's 24-7. And trust me, I've done that. Love McDonald's. You know, if, if we're cold and, and it's a wintry storm out, so long as the, the, the power hasn't been knocked out, you could stay warm all without having to chop wood, all without really having to do anything other than turn the knob on the thermostat. We're so used to comforts, and these comforts are good things, but we, uh, I think, don't know how to handle sorrow because of some of these great benefits that we've been given as, uh, you know, a civilization uh, in the West. But we see that the repeated experience, the repeated refrain of believers under the old covenant and the church under the new is that the Lord comforts his people in the midst of suffering. It does not deny the reality of suffering. And so we see in the Psalms a continued trust that the psalmist puts in God even as death wraps its tentacles around him and drags him down beneath the waves. It's the very thing that Jonah cries out to the Lord in chapter 2 of Jonah. I think the modern world keeps feeding us false intel of what faith should be. We tend to think of faith something like Dorothy's red slippers. I just click my heels three times, I'll be home, everything will be all right. Just pray a prayer, just name it and claim it. Everything will then be a piece of cake. Or perhaps there is what we might call a directionless faith, where it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe, where the strength of faith is found in not the object of faith, but the level of your kind of the grit that you bear. Your own self-determination. Think of the old George Michael song from the 1980s. This is probably the only time you hear me quote George Michael, but remember that old song, you've got to have faith. Well, faith in what? Faith has a particular object. This is uh, the faith in which Paul speaks of here is not a generic, directionless, contentless faith. It is not a faith in your own security, in your own goodness, or in your own abilities. Rather, it is faith in Christ. I remember uh, when I was in college, my old RUF campus minister, Paul Boyd, would always describe faith as something like a straw. Um, 
using an example that you would also see later in a, in a, a Western movie that came out a few years later, but uh, you, if you want to drink a milkshake, what do you do? You stick the straw in the milkshake. Uh, the, 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 you're not, the straw is not what gives you the nutrients or the deliciousness. The, the, the straw is the instrument whereby you receive what is found in the cup. Well, pastor would say, faith is a straw. And that straw is not something that you put in yourself where you're called to trust in your own abilities. Rather, that straw latches itself to Christ. And by trusting in Christ, you draw all the nutrients and all the sweetness and all the goodness that is found in that cup. What is it that Psalm 116 says? I, what shall I render the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? I'll lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Where is your trust directed? This is not a schmaltzy call to a vague notion of faith in some generic fuzzy deity or some generic sense of that I can do better and get through it if I just try harder. No, Paul is calling us to put our trust in Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God. Paul's point is that his confidence is not found in the strength in his own faith. It's not the strength of one's faith that matters. It is the object of our faith that matters. The Lord blesses even weak faith. You think of uh, when, when Christ himself is in our incarnate ministry seeks to, to, to help a man, a man who's calling out for, uh, for, for his son who is being tormented by demons. And Christ says, do you believe? And the man says, what I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, my, my, my faith is so weak. I'm trying so hard, but the circumstances around me seem so great, I don't know if I can make it. Yet Christ reminds that individual that it was not the strength of his faith, but the object. It is Christ who saves by faith. Technically speaking, it is not faith that saves. It is Christ who saves through faith. because we have put our hope in Christ. This type of faith says, I believe the promises of God even while I am in the midst of being gutted and am bleeding out. Think of that straw. Where does the straw go? What are you trusting in? Who have you put your hope in? It's a simple trust. As we confessed our faith together this morning, what is the principal act of saving faith? It is this, it is accepting, it is receiving, and it is trusting. It is the sticking out of the, of the needy hand for a piece of bread saying, I'm hungry. Fill me with that righteousness that only you can provide. It's the very thing that we do when we come to the table. There's nothing we bring to the Lord's table. The only thing we bring is our own sin and misery. Yet it's a continual crying out that salvation is fully of the Lord. He has provided it all in the giving of His body and His blood. It is that kind of trust. It is a trust that sets its object in God's promise to deliver His people through Christ. This is what the Bible describes as true faith. Faith finds its object in Christ. Faith finds its confidence in Christ. Not in itself, To slightly change the metaphors we see here, uh, faith finds its voice. 
in God's promises. Faith is like a mockingbird. It mimics. It repeats what it has been told. The Spirit not only grants faith, but gives voice to faith. As we read along with the Scripture, as David himself says, I believe, therefore, I spoke. Therefore, when we read the, the, the contents of Scripture, we go, this is mine. And I will mimic the pattern and the faith of the saints gone before us because the Lord answered them, and so too will He answer me. What was true for the psalmist was true for Paul. That's why Paul quotes the psalmist, and so therefore it is true for us. Faith finds its voice in the promises of God because that faith has a specific content. What is that content? We find that content here in verse 14 where Paul outlines the contours of faith, those contours being the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, imagine uh, going on a marathon race, uh, uh, if you will, if you've ever done that sort of thing good for you. Um, something I want, I think I've said the only type of runs I do are Taco Bell runs. Uh, but you have, you know, so you're going on a race and you, you, you're, you're in mile 25 and you are just exhausted and you think, how will I make it to the end? What is, what is the only thing that's getting you through? It's not the fact that you feel good at this point. Why, why, why are you keeping on? It's because of the finish line at the end. The finish line is just up over the horizon. And so you keep struggling and pressing on towards that particular mark. It's the only boost that you really have, but it's the boost that is needed to finish the final leg of the tour. Well, Paul over and over again compares the Christian life to a race. And Paul's point here is to keep your eye on the finish line. It is the great impetus to persevere. That impetus is found here that Christ's people have been glorified with Christ, and so when Christ returns, we will be glorified with Christ. The hope of Christ's resurrection is ours. We see that Christ has been raised from the dead, and now all who put their hope in Christ will, here's the finish line, be raised from the dead if we persevere. Faith looks to Christ. Faith sees what God did at the cross, that despite all the suffering undeserved suffering even, for Christ in particular, that Christ underwent as he deserved none of it. He suffered and died, and yet the Lord vindicated his son and raised him from the dead. So faith says, because I belong to Christ, because I have been united to Christ by faith, God will do the same for me. He might not deliver me from death, but he will deliver me through death. The mode of death might differ, I highly doubt that none of us in this room are going to be crucified physically. Most likely it'll be cancer, coronary, something like that. Suffering in this life is certain. And that's a reality that's, that's hard to face. But the scripture does not evade the reality of suffering and death in this life. Rather, it gives the great hope of the resurrection. Paul does not say that we do not mourn. Paul says we, mourn, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. And the great hope is that there is a triumph that exists beyond the grave. This suffering is certain. Unless Christ returns uh, first, every person in this room will die. But there is a great hope that is even more certain. It is the hope of the glory to come. 
something that will outstrip suffering and death, that despite the trials and the troubles, Paul continues to point the church to the cross, that the same God who raised Christ will also raise all of us up together, not just as individuals, but as a people. And he will present us together before the throne of grace on the last day. So that faith boasts in this, faith boasts in the promises of God, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of our Lord's return. Right, so often we think, if, if only this particular suffering, fill in the blank, if only this will lift, then my faith will be strong. And yet what we find throughout Scripture is that suffering is the crucible through which our faith is tested and sustained. It's like gold being put through the fire that it might be purified. So that gold being purified would be cast at Christ's feet as a pure crown on the day of his return. Remember God's promises given to us through Christ. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. One of the things that Paul iterated as we saw last week in verses 7 to 12. And part of that promise we find is that I will not leave you in the grave We could say that the Spirit grants courage in crisis, even by all accounts when we should be discouraged. That's why Paul says, therefore, we do not lose hope. We do not grow discouraged despite the discouraging circumstances. But we find the Spirit-wrought courage carries a distinct purpose, that we might speak so that others might be carried into the kingdom as well. So we see here in verse 15 a consequence of faith. Verse 15, Paul says this, for it is all for your sake. In other words, all of these things, all of the suffering that Paul has undergone, Paul says these sufferings are for you. It is for Corinth, it is for the lost, it is for those outside the kingdom of Christ that they might hear the good news, that they might have a model set before them of the promises found in Christ, the way in which Christ sustains us in the midst of suffering that Paul himself models in vivid reality the message that he brings, the message of the cross. That's the argument. Paul is saying our suffering is for your sake, for this particular purpose. That is, the saving grace of God extends to more and more people. In other words, as the gospel goes out further and further, this proclamation of the gospel dispels the darkness. As the public ministry of the word shatters sin's shackles, as the Spirit speaks and Light is formed in the midst of darkness. It is the act of new creation, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter. And as that happens, it leads to a consequence that there would be an increase of thanksgiving to the glory of God, that here is the God who has delivered us from darkness and into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Paul suffers to bring the gospel to the lost so that more and more people might join in the chorus of adoration of King Jesus. It's the good news we find here this morning that God gives courage to the discouraged. Rest to the weary. He sustains the sorrowful, but we find that this is not simply a therapy session. That the Spirit grants a courageous faith in the midst of ferocious conflict so that the grace of God might go out to the nations. Not simply so that we'd feel better about ourselves, but so that the the gospel might go out. 
God shapes the messenger to look like the message, and so he shapes his people and fashions his people to a cross to embody and possess the very gospel that we profess. I think this really reorients our view of suffering, doesn't it? Paul's main point in these three short verses is this, that the Spirit brings others into Christ's kingdom by bringing you through the fire. So often our questions regarding suffering are so self-focused. Why me? As if we were men turned in on ourselves, thinking only about ourselves rather than the purpose for which the Lord has put us through these trials of affliction. I think we tend to get that the suffering will give way to glory at Christ's return, but sometimes fail to grasp the purpose of suffering in the here and now, that God uses our present sorrows as a means to bring a light to the nations, even now. Why is that? As we saw in verses 10 and 11 last week, the Christian life is marked by this, the carrying about in our bodies of both the death and resurrection of Christ simultaneously. We suffer so that in the midst of suffering, the resurrection power of Christ will be made known. We suffer so that God demonstrates his power in the midst of our own powerlessness. We suffer so that the treasure of the gospel might shine forth in jars of clay. The Spirit shapes our life to look like the cross, that he might manifest the resurrection power of Christ to a world that dwells in darkness. The minister not only proclaims the gospel, his life is a manifestation of the same gospel, and that is true for every believer. And so we must suffer to the glory of God, that the resurrection power of Christ might be seen in us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have tailor-made a cross for each of us. And though the cross is not sweet, our fellowship with our Savior is. What can we render for all the benefits that you have given to us? We will lift up the cup of salvation, call on the name of the Lord, knowing that you have provided salvation to us through faith in Christ alone, the great object of our faith. And so we ask that as we come to the table this morning, you would strengthen our faith, that we might persevere faithfully to the very end. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.